Hi, this is Dr. Judith Orloff. I'm author of The Empath Survival Guide, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Dr. Judith Orloff. Judith is a psychiatrist, best-selling author, an empath, and intuitive healer, and she's on the UCLA Psychiatric Clinical Faculty. Her work has been featured on the Today Show, CNN, The Oprah Magazine, and USA Today, among many others. Dr. Orloff has spoken at Google LA and has a popular TEDx talk. She lives in in Venice, California, and is here to talk about her book, The Empath Survival Guide, Life Strategies for Sensitive People. Welcome, Judith. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be on your show. Judith, I'm sure you know that early relationships have such a profound influence and impact in our lives. So when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Uh, Well, I think my mother inspired me as a child. Um, I was a a single, an only child, and my parents were both physicians, and I come from a lineage of 25 physicians in my family. Um, And you know, I learned from my mother about what it is to be an incredible physician because she would take me on house calls with her you know, and I would thrive with her and watch her with her patients, listening to their hearts, palpating their abdomens, hearing their stories. And I, I saw how beautiful it was to have a, an empathic mother um, and how she you know, really loved her patients and was such an excellent physician. So I got that modeling as a child, which is very rare and special. And you said that she was also an empath. So it makes sense that she enjoyed that one-on-one connection, doesn't it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, in the olden days, uh, people used to do more one-on-one connections and love it. You know, the, the old family doctor with the bag and everything. So no, it's it's something that I, I, I have still have a private practice where I treat empaths and sensitive people. As I love that one-on-one connection, and I think in part it, it stems back to watching my mother's love for you know, humanity. When you look back on you know your childhood growing up, what was one decision you made when you're in high school or college that's contributed significantly to your own uh, career trajectory? Well, I had a dream. Um, to uh, become an MD, to have the credentials to legitimize um, empathy and intuition in medicine. It was at a time when I was didn't know what I was doing. I had no career path. I was working in the towel department in the May Company, um, living with my boyfriend in Venice Beach. And I had this very clear dream. I was really always more creative. And, um, you know, I loved people on the edge. But yet I had a dream to follow in the same path my parents were going you know, had gone in terms of becoming a physician. So I had dropped out of school at that time. And so I re-enrolled in a course in a community college. And then one course became two, became 14 years of medical training. So I followed that intuition to find my true destiny. And it's interesting how that really led you to take that path. 
Because if someone had said, well, you have to become a physician, we're a family of physicians, I imagine that would have just brought about a lot of resistance and not much progress. Right. I had no desire to do that. I really loved, you know, artists and musicians, and I was really bored with with uh, physicians because I had been brought up with all my parents' friends who were nice but didn't really, um, you know, seem that exciting to me. So it wasn't a. I didn't want to go through 14 years of medical training, but you know, I had a dream that redirected me, and I like everyone listening, you know, in whatever vocation you're in, in your businesses, to listen to your gut, listen to your dreams, listen to your non-linear knowledge that comes through you know your body and you know and other forms other than just your intellect to help guide you as well that's such an important reminder because all of us have dreams that are often pushed aside by the busyness of work the busyness of our schedules and then to reconnect with it will often be a source of both inspiration and energy to deal with the other factors coming into our life on a day-to-day basis that's so true and so what gives us the maximum energy and what helps me, I'm a psychiatrist and I'm also an empath. An empath is somebody who's an emotional sponge who tends to take on the emotions and stress from the environment. And so often empaths are overwhelmed and go on sensory overload and take on too much from their coworkers. Um, but what's helped me and why I wrote the empath survival guide was to, you know, develop skills and practice skills to protect your energy and to stay centered and to not get hooked in dysfunctional conversations at work or anywhere else and to really practice self-care techniques you know as a sensitive person if you identify as a sensitive person then you need to really practice you know techniques that will safeguard your your sensitivities um, some of the I have a, a self quiz in the front of the empath survival guide, and it's to determine if you're an empath or not. And some of the questions include, have I been labeled as overly sensitive you know, in a derogatory way? Do I get my energy replenished alone versus in crowds? Do I tend to take on the stress of other people into my own body? Do I prefer taking my own car places so I can leave when I please? and not get trapped? Do I sometimes feel suffocated by intimate relationships? So you know, all of those are questions that one needs to ask themselves so you get diagnosed correctly. And if you're an empath in the workplace, you need to know certain skills to maximize your creativity and not take on the negative energy that might be around you. Judith, it's really important to make a distinction between people who are leaders and saying to themselves all the time, reminding themselves to have empathy for others, to put yourself into the other's shoes, that what you're talking about is a whole different level from just exercising that extension and openness to and curiosity as to what others are feeling. An empath really doesn't have the ability to choose that, to choose to be open. It's really a matter of developing strategies and mechanisms in order to protect oneself. Is that fair to say? Uh, yes, it is. And the difference between empathy and being an empath is this. And with empathy, it's such a beautiful quality that I feel the most precious quality we have as human beings. It's where our heart goes out to another person in joy or in pain, and we feel for them. You know, we're not islands separate from them who... who we, where we don't feel for other people, we feel for them with our hearts. However, being an empath, we do that 
but we also tend to be an emotional sponge and take on other people's issues or get too involved with other people and become overwhelmed or absorbed in, in what's going on with them rather than centering our own selves. So empaths, their gifts are creativity, insight, innovation, productivity, you know, when they're in the right environments, uh, intuition, a depth of connection to nature and other people. I mean, there's so many beautiful gifts of being an empath if you learn how to center and protect your energy, which is what the book is about. So we live in a, an age now where there's an onslaught of news and social media posts and other emotionally charged messages. How can these skills help us cope with this onslaught? That's a great question. Um, I treat you know numerous empaths in my practice who get in the bad habit of watching the 11 o'clock news. And this, you know, I have one named Jane who would just a news addict. She wanted to know what was happening. She was busy all day, so she didn't working. So she didn't really have that much time to listen to the news, but she would listen to it at night. And so she would get really exhausted and have nightmares and not get a good night's sleep because she was so upset by all the suffering and the bad news. And so as an empath, she was taking on all that in her body and it was disrupting her sleep. So then when she woke up, she wasn't quite alert and she was drinking too much coffee and it was a vicious cycle. And so, you know, the prescription really is, you know, not, I don't suggest any empaths watch the 11 o'clock news. That's a terrible idea because you, you want to have a peaceful pre-sleep environment. You want to have music, you want to have a bathtub, empaths love water. You want to have showers. You want to have poetry. You want to have sweet things that were restful rather than upsetting. You don't want to do your bills. You don't want to do any work. Well, that makes that holds true for everyone, though, doesn't it? I mean, to be able to set aside time as a ritual to prepare for bed. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. It's very important. But it's important to remember with empaths, they're, you know, everything's exacerbated. It's it's so much it's it's like we're you know going around life without filters on that other people have. We don't have the same kind of filters, so we feel things very, very intensely. So, you know, what's happening to humankind in other countries, the suffering there, it can feel like our own. And you have a little bit more distance, you know, if you're not an empath. But empaths until they learn how to set healthy boundaries, which is key you know, oftentimes just take it all on and feel exhausted or anxious or depressed from it. Feeling anxious, depressed, and I might even go further to say um, angry and afraid are often feelings we feel about a lot of the, the news that comes our way. No matter what discussion you get into these days, it seems like there's there are plenty of opportunities to feel these strong emotions. And one thing I would imagine is that's really hard to feel empathy for others when you're, or be open to their arguments when you're feeling angry, afraid, upset, drained, depressed, how does someone get some distance either as an empath or a non-empath when those emotions are triggered and you need to be able to kind of gain some clarity and some space? What, what do you recommend? Well, a mantra that I suggest, you know, everybody practice is that it's not my job to take on the world's pain. And that's very important that you know that. It doesn't mean you're not being empathic. It means not your job to take on the pain. It doesn't help anybody or anything if you take on somebody else's pain. 
oftentimes people are taught when they're growing up that to be a compassionate person, they need to take on other people's pain and they need to never set a boundary or say, you know, I think it would benefit from going to a therapist, but not somebody who is poor me. The world is against me. You don't want to enable that. So empaths need to learn now, how to set really kind, loving, but firm boundaries. And it makes sense if people don't recognize that they're in a relationship or that they're managing an empath, that the empath just takes on not just only what's being said, but also the emotional tone of the room or the group or the team. When things are going bad, it affects them in a magnified way, doesn't it? Oh, in a much magnified way. And it's, you know, part of the science behind being an empath, it has to do with understanding emotional contagion at work. Because if somebody comes in and has, you know, high anxiety, oh my God, I'm going to lose my job. You know, we're going to get a pay cut. And that goes all over the work environment. Then everybody's going to be anxious and empaths get especially anxious. So it's, you know, it's a result of negative emotional contagion, but there can be positive emotional contagion too, where someone comes in with a positive attitude, you know, we're going to do great today. And there's so many, you know, positive things that are going to happen that also spreads to other people and empaths. And I think that everyone can relate to having someone who's an emotional drain. I I think of the SNL character, Debbie the Downer. Yeah, right. The Downer who could bring everybody else down. And when I spoke at Google, on the empath survival guide, that was one of the biggest concerns that people had. And how do I stay in my work environment and not be brought down by somebody who's negative? You know, and how do you handle it in in a work situation? You know, who is the one responsible for handling that? Is somebody just left unchecked and, you know, it spreads like a, a virus to everybody? Or do they go to HR? Or is there somebody you know, who's there, who can handle that. Because it's a real problem. And I think in a healthy work environment that it needs to be addressed in a healthy way. And, you know, to help people stay as positive as they possibly can, to be as creative as they can. So say that someone who's an empath is in a situation in a small business and needs to have a change made. Let's just say that Jane is an empath and she manages a team and she gets thrown off her work when people just drop in and say, here's something that's wrong. Here's something that's got to change. How could Jane create some structure in her environment to prevent people from throwing her off her own game? Um, who is saying something has to change? Is this a coworker? Someone on her team is coming in to complain about something not going right. And it happens regularly because Jane hasn't stopped it. And she somehow has fallen into this pattern. Well, I think it's very important that she realize she's being stuck dry by this person and that it's not a healthy pattern to focus on how this person can best get help. If it's a solution-oriented problem, I would stick to that. You know, just, you know, just say, you know, if somebody says, you know, somebody leaves their job early and dumps all this work on me, you know, you have to address that, you know, in terms of a solution, solution-oriented. But with Jane, I would not suggest that she keep looking intensely into this person's eyes, keep, you know, having body language that shows that she's interested in them and encouraging them to express uh, a negative circular thinking. See what the problem is, get to the bottom of it and put a solution there. And if she's having any kind of other emotional problems to direct them to HR or direct them to somebody who can get the person some support. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think that's very important for people who are feeling overwhelmed by the demands of others to know that there's help for it within the organization that's set up structurally for that, such as with HR, and to be able to say things like you're suggesting, and maybe even saying to the, the person who's interrupting all the time, say, you know what, it would really be more productive if we waited till our Thursday staff meeting to bring that up. It seems like the things you're bringing me aren't urgent. And it's not something I can, you know, help you with until then. So why don't we just table it? Yeah, that that's great. The only risk of that is you don't want her bringing down the whole team with endless verbiage that's negative. You know, people need to be educated about how to communicate. Sometimes they just don't know. And sometimes it would be great, you know, to have meetings with everyone and especially the empaths on the best way to communicate. You know, there I, I went to a retreat at a Zen monastery for my birthday. They have this wonderful uh, technique called functional speech, where if they're working in the kitchen, they just use the minimal amount of words possible, you know, like tomato or pan, so that people are able to do their work in more peace rather than all this verbiage that's so draining. And I think it's wonderful to train people that sometimes things can be said in the simplest of ways with the most positive attitude that can be the most productive at work. But a lot of people don't realize that a chronic talker, you know, or somebody who just won't stop talking is going to drain the, you know, the energy out of the room and the oxygen out of the room. What you're saying is evident day in and day out that these types of situations are occurring and they're not going to resolve themselves. And by the introduction of new tools, new structures, new language, people could develop more productive and satisfying relationships at work. Exactly. But that takes a, a, a bit of a higher level of communication, which is easy to teach. I mean, this is so easy to teach. People just don't think about it. Now, how, what do we do? So you can have pre-planned scenarios and you're ready for it, as opposed to just taking, being taken off guard and letting somebody come into your office over and over and over again and draining your energy with the same dysfunctional pattern. So you don't want to do that. But a lot of people don't know how to set healthy boundaries, which is a, a, a wonderful tool for empaths. You know, as an empath myself, you know, I've had to have fierce boundary setting to be able to protect my own energy. Otherwise, you know, empaths wear an invisible sign around them that says, I can help you. And so people flock from far and wide. I can be in an airport and someone's going to start confessing their life story to me. It happens all the time. It happens since I was a child. And that's very common with empaths. And so I've learned to say, you know, I'm, this is really my private time and, and I want to read. I could give you a good referral if you like it, but, you know, just 15 seconds, 10 seconds it takes me to say that with a smile. Now, not with, you know, you're bothering me, leave me alone, you know, not with negativity, but with, you know, just owning the moment, you know, and really knowing what to do in those cases when people encroach on your boundaries. What's the example of a time when you learned to do that before you were trained as a, a psychiatrist? Maybe it was through being taught as part of your training, but I imagine that there isn't a lot of time devoted to dealing with empaths in traditional psychiatric education. Who did you really learn that from in order to turn the corner and to have more confidence in your ability to stay on top of your game? Right. Well, they don't really treat that, uh, talk about that in uh, traditional psychiatric training. I mean, I, I was trained at UCLA, which is more biologically oriented, meaning I was trained how to give out medications. 
and treat the biochemical correlates to human behavior, no depression, anxiety, panic, psychosis. But I wasn't trained much on how to set boundaries. I mean, really, I think the first time I ever learned it was from my own therapist a long time ago, because I was so overwhelmed by people coming to me and I wanted to help them. I mean, outside of my work, you know, thank you for sharing, but I can't really listen, you know, very long. Or I could only listen one minute. The more concrete you are in the way you set boundaries, the better. You don't do it apologetically. You don't do it long. You do it very short. And you do it in a tone of voice that's firm and loving. You know, oh, I'm so sorry you're going through that. But I've got to get back to my project right now. I'll hold good thoughts for you. You know, that's all you need to do. You don't need to go into any more detail. That's where people get into trouble, where they feel guilty and apologize for setting a boundary. And then, you know, there you're hooked back in again with with the whole thing, which you don't want to do. That is going to be really valuable as people listen to be able to have a language pattern to be able to adopt and, and use as their own in order to set those boundaries and disengage rather than be sucked into those types of conversations. Judith, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Yeah. All right. As you think about ways to structure your environment, what are one or two things that you do on a regular basis to set yourself up for success on a daily routine? You know, in my house and and also in my office, because I share it with other therapists, I have a keep out sign on my door. For instance, at home, if I'm meditating or I need quiet time, people know not to knock or come in or bother me. And that's really important. And in your research, do people who are empaths process and produce some of the brain chemicals like serotonin and dopamine differently? They do. It's, you know, I I talk about in the book, the science of empathy and empaths. And one interesting thing is that it seems that empaths don't need as much dopamine as extroverts or non-empaths, meaning the dopamine is the pleasure hormone, meaning they'll be satisfied by sitting at home reading a book or meditating or doing something very simple, you know, rather than going to a Rolling Stones concert or a football game or a large party that where you get a huge dopamine boost. You know, that empaths, that's too much for them, too much for their system. So it seems that empaths and non-empaths regulate their dopamine differently. If we were to identify one of the most important things for empaths to think about or the people who manage empaths to think about, which of these three, or it might be another, would you say would be the the most significant place and probably the lowest hanging fruit as a place to start? Would it be creating a boundary through physical um, changes like your keep out sign? Would it be learning language patterns such as, I'm sorry you're having that trouble. I can't help you right now because I'm in the middle of a project. Or would it be asking others to provide support in the work environment by educating them as to what the best times to do different activities are based upon their own personal needs and availability? You're asking me to choose among those three? Choose among those three or mention one that I haven't. A quiet work environment. That's so important to have a quiet, peaceful work environment if, if possible. And to learn how to set regular, helpful boundaries with people, because people will encroach on your boundaries all the time because they're unconscious and they don't have the education that's needed and the refinement that's needed to understand you know, how to set a boundary and how to respect people's space. So until your work environment has dealt with those issues openly and easily, I think you, you know, being able to speak up for yourself and protect your time. You know, you need to do excellent work 
it's just for me, I, I love work. You know, my work is my passion. Being a psychiatrist, being a writer, and having that high quality time where nobody's bothering me, you know, to be able to do my craft and just get into it and really just soar, that's very important to me. You know, the whole thing about no interruptions when you're doing a creative project. You know, the one interesting thing about Google was that, you know, they don't require their employees to even come into work. You know, whatever they want to do, as long as they get their projects done, unless they're having a meeting, that they can choose the environment. They have surfboards at Google LA where they could just go take surfboards and go down to the beach during the day and just replenish themselves that way and come back to work. I think that's amazing. Well, it's completely in line with what you're recommending too, where you're giving people the tools to create the environment where they could be most satisfied and productive. Right. And they're not in a straight jacket of having to, you know, be a certain way that they could go get their hair cut. They have a, you know, a hair, a barber shop, you know, they could get, they could go to the beach, they could go up to the roof deck and whatever they want to do and look at the beautiful view. So that the the variety is often helpful, and the idea that you can get away from stress, that you are not stuck in a pressure cooker, is key. I think that's probably one of the most important things that we've mentioned right now in this interview, is making sure people know they have the permission to take themselves out of an environment that's not comfortable, not healthy, and seek out the changes that they need. Whether it's walking up to the rooftop, like you said, whether it's just walking in the parking lot to get five or 10 minutes to breathe at your own pace, whether it's walking away after a a busy, highly charged group phone call and being able to recenter yourself. I love that that's something that came out of this, Judith. I really do. Oh, good. Well, I hope it frees people and it educates people. You know, these conversations that we're having now are healthy and they need to be had in the work environment as well so everybody can get on the same page with this. Well, you've shared so many great ideas on this interview. I just want to thank you so much for bringing in the ideas of growing up and being able to watch your mom make household visits as a physician and gaining an appreciation of the, the beauty of those interactions. Being able to relate to us about when you went on that retreat for your birthday and learned about functional speech that the monks use to just use minimal verbiage in order to communicate things and how that's effective. And it's so soothing to have that cut down. Thanks for sharing with us the fact that you have a keep out sign in your office, because as you mentioned, so many empaths carry an invisible sign that says, I can help you. It's good to have that contrast. Judith, thank you so much. Before we say goodbye, tell me, where can we find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, my website is www.drjudithorloff.com. Dr. Judith Orloff, author of the Empath Survival Guide. Thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. My pleasure. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments, and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.
Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.